What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Hello, podcast listeners. I'm Connor, and welcome to this week's episode of Intelligence Squared. Today, we're joined by Alicia Garza, co-founder of the Black Lives Matter movement and author of the new book, The Purpose of Power, How to Build Movements in the 21st Century. And in conversation with Yasmin Abdelmajid, she spoke about how she built one of the most influential social justice movements in recent times. From the acquittal of George Zimmerman to the protests this year after the murder of George Floyd, she talked about the evolution of the Black Lives Matter movement and why social justice movements need to be more than hashtags and be grounded in grassroots organisation. It's a really fascinating conversation, but now let's go to the episode. Welcome all to this Intelligence Squared Plus event with Alicia Gaza. I'm so excited for this. I really enjoyed Alicia's new book, The Purpose of Power, um, which is just here. And... I'll tell you a little bit about Alicia as we get into the, and then we'll get into the conversation. So Alicia, as you know, is the co-creator of Black Lives Matter and the Black Lives Matter Global Network. She's the principal at the Black Futures Lab and the Black to the Future Action Fund, the director of strategy and partnership at the US National Domestic Workers Alliance and the host of the podcast, A Lady Don't Take No, where she shares her thoughts on politics and pop culture. She's a frequent media commentator on issues relating to politics, race, gender, sexual orientation and gender diversity. And she's someone who has spent a life dedicated to organising and uh, has a life who's had much impact on all of us, I think. Certainly folks like me who are black and and interested in seeing a more just society. So I'm really, really honoured to be welcoming Alicia to the Intelligence Squared stage. All right, Alicia, thank you so much for taking the time to have this conversation with us. And you've been organising for a long time, but there is no doubt that 2020 has been a year unlike any other, especially for Black-led movements against police brutality rising up around the world following the murder of George Floyd. I wanted to start this interview in a place of compassion and curiosity and ask you, how are you today, right now? How has this year been for you? Hmm. Well, first of all, thank you so much, Yasmin, for agreeing to organize and moderate this conversation. It's a real pleasure to be here with you. And thanks so much to the Intelligence Squared audience for having me. You know, 2020, (laughs) as I was saying, you know, backstage, (laughs) um, you know, this year has really gotten me used to uncertainty in a way that I think I thought I was, but I really wasn't. And, you know, I'm okay. I I mean, every day is different. And frankly, 
you know, I am a little bit tired, I guess, of the roller coasters that seem to come every week. But in a lot of ways, um, those roller coasters help me get focused on what's important um, because there's always so much happening that it makes me just deeply understand that I can't take on everything. So I, it requires that I have a laser focus. And other than that, I mean, I'm, I'm hanging in there like most of us, right? We um, are in the middle of a global pandemic and um, our lives have changed dramatically. And I think I, like many people, are trying to get used to that, which is not normal, wondering what our lives are going to be like on the other side of this, wondering if there is another side of this. You know, I read an article recently that said that this moment is um, indicative of, you know, turning points that we've experienced, uh, not just in the United States, but around the globe. For example, uh, you know, the, the kind of crashing into of the Twin Towers in New York City um, changed our lives dramatically. And whereas before I remember going into airports where there were no metal detectors, there was no TSA, now that is very much functionally a way of life. And so I think that this is one of those moments and I spend time, you know, trying to grapple with that as much as possible. Mm, thank you. And your book is also, I think, coming at a time where, it, and it's asking us to focus, it's asking us to focus around this idea of power. Tell us about what this idea of, what does power mean to you? And what is the purpose of power? Because I think you speak about it in a way that is different to, to perhaps how people might understand it in a casual sense. Mm-hmm. Well, the purpose of power, frankly, is to transform it and to use it to make our lives better. And movements, right, are what happen when we push to put more power into the hands of more people so that more of us have a say in the conditions that impact our lives every single day. And for me, it was really important to hone in on this issue of power because I think For so many, um, the most visible part of social change ends up being protests, right? It's the thing that people recognize. It's what they see. But it's also why on the other end of protests, most times people say, well, what has changed, right? (laughs) Everybody was out in the streets. Now people aren't out in the streets. But what is changing? And I think it's important for us to understand that, you know, power is not the same thing as self-esteem. Um, you know, I, I can feel empowered when I wake up in the morning. And in fact, this morning I did feel empowered. I got on my Peloton bike, you know, rode for 45 minutes. I broke some records that I hadn't broken before and I felt powerful. I felt like I could do anything. And yet what I know is that if I walk outside of my front door, the world is shaping me and my experiences in so many ways that really impacts whether or not I can change my circumstances, you know. And so for me, power is very much the ability to shape the rules and make the rules. And without power, right, so much of our social change work, right, is actually work that is making us feel better, right? Feeling better about resisting, feeling better about raising our voices. But ultimately, what we are trying to do is change people's life circumstances. And that requires amassing power, but it also requires changing the way that power operates. 
And I wanted us to focus on this because I think so often in our movements and in our efforts for social change, we always start at the place of what we don't want. We start at the place of what is not working. And we've become very literate in that. And that's important. It's important to understand what's going on around us and why it's happening. But it's equally as important to have a vision for where it is that we want to go, what it is that we want to see instead. And the bridge between where we are and where we want to go is power. And so for me, this book really is asking us, you're right, to focus on what it is that we're fighting for so that we can fight smarter, so that we can fight more strategically, and so that we can win. Mm, I love that. Changing the way that power operates. It's almost like power is an energy that can be transformed into lots of different forms. But you start your book talking about how a different faction, the right, let's say, was also quite strategic in how it built and consolidated and transformed power for its own purposes. And I, I, I found it really fascinating how you situated yourself in that generation. So would you be able to tell us a little bit about how you grew up seeing the the different kind of factions consolidate power and, and what that sort of taught you or how that shaped you as an organizer? Mm-hmm. So I, I wanted to start this book talking about movements, talking about how I came up because I felt it was the most concrete way to identify how it is that power operates and how it is that it operates both explicitly and also implicitly. And for me, you know, understanding power is not an academic exercise, right? I mean, making the rules and changing the rules is happening all around us. And as I say in the book, movements are not reserved for those of us who are seeking justice and actually that our entire globe has been impacted by a very powerful movement that has built and amassed power over the last three decades or more. And we see the tangible effects of that in our lives every single day. However, we may not identify it that way. We may just think that that is the way that things are. That's the way that things have always been. And that too is a form of power, right? To be able to set the status quo and to be able to determine what is common sense, right? And what is outside of the bounds of that. And so, yes, I do use my own story to talk about how that operates. And for me, you know, I grew up, I was, you know, born to, at the time, a woman who was a single mother, and she didn't expect to be a single mother. In fact, when she got pregnant with me, she was in a relationship that she thought was going to last forever. And that relationship ended up disintegrating right before I was born. And so, you know, my mom really struggled as a black woman, right, in the early 1980s in the United States to make ends meet and to be able to raise me. And I talk about how the project of building power for the right really impacted my mom's circumstances and her choices. You know, she came from a, you know, relatively middle class, middle to working class community in Toledo, Ohio. And at that time, for women like my mother, the only options for being able to to survive was to work in retail, 
to be a secretary, right? Or to be like a teacher. <laughs> and that was the, the options that were available for women at that time. And then when we talk about the options available for black women, those options got very, very narrow because of the way that racism operates in our societies. I talk a little bit about what it was like for me growing up in the early 1980s where, you know, black children did not fare well under the Reagan administration. And actually, when Reagan came to power in the United States, he launched a full scale assault against black communities. And in particular, he worked very hard alongside a whole range of other people to ensure that the kind of divisions, right, between races, between genders were actually deepened, right? So I talk about growing up during the war on drugs and what that meant for black families. I talked about, you know, my mother trying to get support for me in an, under an administration that was demonizing black women who were falling behind in an economy that was deeply unsustainable. And I tell all of these stories, right, because it's important for me to communicate that the way that that the right has been able to amass power, right, has been to roll back many of the gains that were won here in the States, in particular around civil rights, to kind of insert religion into um, governance, right? And really identify, right? One religion that was supposed to be kind of the universal organizing principle for millions and millions of people, despite a very clear kind of distinction that's made around that in, in the Constitution, the separations between church and state. And I also talk about the way that it shapes our ideas about who we are and what is possible for our communities. And one of the methodological reasons that I did this is because, again, when we're trying to figure out how to make change, it's very easy to look outside of ourselves, right? It's very easy to look outside of ourselves and say, oh, I see poverty outside of myself and I want to change that, but I'm acting for somebody else. I'm acting on somebody else's behalf. But in fact, social change and us being social change agents really requires that we understand how we are placed in time, right, in our particular conditions and um, in our po particular political moment in history. And it also requires us to be clear about the way that we are shaping the world and also the way that the world is shaping us. That is the foundation for a baseline assessment of what our role can be in social change. And fundamentally, I think I argue in this book that we should be changing the world for ourselves, right? That, you know, the altruistic acts of social change are good and fine, right? But every single one of us is being impacted by these movements. And it's up to us then to determine how our lives will shift if our participation increases in it. That is the actual motivator, right, for staying involved in social change, but also for connecting across issues and silos, right? It's the basis for building movements. I mean, your story in many ways has been deeply impacted by the sort of political moment in history for yourself. I mean, in, in so in August 2013, after the acquittal of the man who killed Trayvon Va Trayvon Martin, you wrote on Facebook, black people, I love you. 
I love us and our lives matter. And that was where the hashtag Black Lives Matter was heard around the world in the beginning of what we now understand as the Black Lives Matter movement. How, I mean, what have you learned in the years since? And I mean, that's a huge question, but how has the movement, perhaps a, a more specific question might be, are the ways that the movement has evolved that has surprised you? I will, t- I'll take on both your questions, actually. Great. <laughs> I love it. When <laughs> because that happens. They're they both very excellent questions. And the thing that I have learned over the course of this movement, but also over the course of more than 20 years of social change organizing, is that it's important to have a soft heart, but a tough skin. And I offer that because um, for so many of us who get involved in social change efforts for the first time, because we know that things are happening that are detrimental to us, to our lives, to the people who we care about. We can often go into these fights and into these campaigns as if we're going into a utopia, right? And that, you know, what can happen when we have this idea of a utopia actually is that we can get disappointed very easily and it can turn us off to this work. And I have talked about um, in this book, I talk about, you know, my very first campaign that I put my heart and soul into and how we lost and how I curled up in a ball for two weeks and felt so disillusioned and so much like maybe change wasn't possible. But over time, what I've learned is that two things. Number one, change is possible, but it both happens on a long arc and on a short arc. The other thing that I've learned is that, frankly, if we don't believe that change can happen, it's going to be very hard to make it. (laughs) And so we have to combat cynicism at every stage. And cynicism looks a bunch of ways, right? It looks like people disappointing us. It looks like the groups that we join not operating the way that we think they should. It looks like people hurting us, right? It looks all the kinds of ways. But the way that I've started to resolve this for myself is just to know that part of what movements are is messy. And they're messy because they're comprised of human beings who are trying to bring forward a world that does not yet exist. We are forging a path, right? As we need that path to be the one that leads us in the right direction. And that is hard work. And so for me, I I just try to ground myself in, you know, part of what we have to keep doing is coming back together over and over again. And part of what that takes for me personally is to be able to have a soft heart, but also a tough skin. In relationship to your question about you know, what has surprised me the most about this movement? I mean, I'll be honest with you. When I started writing this book, I thought this book was going to be all about Black Lives Matter. And I was going to do, you know, the rundown of the thing that I had helped to create because we get so many of the same questions over and over again. Like, are you anti-police? Are you this? Are you that? And I'm like, okay, we should just put this all in one place, right? (laughs) But actually, yeah, it's not the story that came out. Mm -hmm. And I'm glad because the thing about this movement after seven years, what I realized is that we're just getting started. And every single time when I thought, oh, this is definitely the end, it was like (laughs) we catapulted again in some other direction. And so 
I think for me, part of what I wanted to make sure of is that this book didn't put a period at the end of a sentence that is still being written. At the same time, um, I talk a lot in the book about things that I've learned in this movement over the last seven years. And I have a whole chapter actually about elections and mm. um, our relationship to electoral organizing, our relationship to electoral politics, knowing that for so many who are activists, right, we are rightfully disillusioned with the way that government functions because the way that government has been set up literally is to um, provide for, right, and serve the needs of some and ignore the needs of others. I mean, this is just, this is like not opinion. It's just fact. I mean, it's written into our foundational documents. And so what I'm really proud of this year is the way in which our movement shaped the U.S. presidential elections. And frankly, the last time around, our movement got used as a political football in a way that was crushing and it was devastating. And at the end of the day, you know, it, it kept us from addressing some of the real issues that were at the forefront. This time around, I think people really felt like they wanted a rematch and rematch we got. <laughs> and so I can say definitively that this movement really did shape the outcome of this election. I think this movement really moved through our discomfort around um, the 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 corrupt way that politics functions and understood that at the end of the day, it's not about us becoming a part of that machine. It's about mm -hmm. us not leaving anything on the table and saying mm -hmm. that every arena is an arena for social change. And I, I think that the benefits of that will continue to play out for, for years to come. Well, I think as the pride around influencing and having a real impact in the election is like hugely well deserved and I think a lot of people owe um, the movement a lot and actually I was going to ask another question but I'm going to sort of build off something you just said which I think is really interesting because in your book you talk about the importance of broad based support and multiracial organizing and can you tell us a little bit about that? Because on one hand, there's this, I think, strong argument to be made for, you know, black liberation kind of leading the way and having a lot to teach movements, but also sitting alongside that, the importance of multiracial organizing. And then with that, how do we how do we avoid the scarcity mindset of being like, oh, well, our issues are the most important. Let's have that at the forefront or like you've got too much space. It's our turn now. How do we navigate all of that and get to that broad based support that that need that is needed? Mm. Well, thank you for that question. And I think it's one that's on lots of people's minds. So I'm so glad that you put it front and center. You know, I'll start off by saying that the purpose of building multiracial movements is to get us closer to building a multiracial democracy. And a multiracial democracy is really one in which nobody gets left behind and nobody gets left out. You know, when I look at government, you know, in, in the United States, what I see is that it is still majority white, cisgender, heterosexual men. And that is still true at the same time that demographics are changing in this country dramatically. 
where the majority of people who live in this country are not white, heterosexual, cisgender men. And so when we have a government that is supposed to represent and reflect the interests and the needs of the people, um, you can see that there's a huge disconnect there. Mm -hmm. And so I, I start with that because I want us to understand that this is bigger than everybody singing Kumbaya, right? That actually the purpose of trying to struggle to build these kinds of movements is to change the way that we're governed, right? And to change not only who, but how we are governed. Mm -hmm. And so for me, the trick to building multiracial movements is to treat them as if it is important for them to have substance and not just be a symbol. These are not, we're not trying to build the the brochures for uni, right? Where it's like one of each kind of person that you can think of and it's like diversity, right? That's not what we're actually trying to do. What we are trying to do is better understand how we got here in the first place and how our, how our histories, right, um, have led to our present. And one of the biggest mistakes that I think we make in multiracial organizing is we try to boil it down to two-dimensional work. In my book, I talk about what this work has looked like for me over the last 20 years and how I learned this lesson myself. I spent 10 years in an organization that was fighting for the rights of Black and Latinx people in San Francisco, California, around a whole range of issues. And we saw ourselves as a multiracial organization, and we were. We had members of our organization who were working class and white. We had members of our organization who were from the Asian diaspora. We had members of our organization who were Latin ex-immigrants, or they were Latinx folks who were born here in this country. And then similarly with Black folks as well. And we also had, you know, a whole range of backgrounds, experiences, etc. And I tell the story of how, you know, people's teachings would come out in group spaces, and how often we had an an inadequate response to those teachings. For example, you know, somebody who was coming to a membership meeting would say something like, you know, well, it's it's really about those lazy Mexicans, right? And everybody would gasp, right? And be like, I can't believe you said that. You can't say that. It's not nice, right? And then the person would inevitably be like, oh, okay, I can't say that. But we didn't actually change anything about the way that they thought. So they could leave that meeting and still say, well, I still think it's the lazy Mexicans, but I can't actually say that in this room. And so what I push for, right, is for us to actually take on these questions that people are offering, but also help lead people to different conclusions. So first of all, context matters, right? And you cannot tell people that they don't see what they see. So if people see multiple people living in a house, right? Five people, 10 people living in a home, you can't actually say to them, that's not happening. And it's not nice that you say that. <laughs> no, it is happening. And people need to understand why. Is it because people are lazy? Or is it because, right, people are trying to survive? And how did they get there? And most people probably wouldn't want to live in one house with 10 people. So why why is that the circumstance that the person is in? And what does that mean for our community? What does that mean for the things that we're fighting for? And so once we go through those questions with people, 
then they can make sense of the things that they're seeing in a different way versus taking the common sense that all of us are given, right? Immigrants are lazy, black people are criminals, you know, Muslim people are terrorists, right? We all have been given these categories and these stereotypes, but few of us actually ask where they come from and few of us actually ask, what is the real reason? If we're able to dive into those things, we're diving into our histories. And a lot of those histories are distinct, but what is not distinct about them is what the outcomes are. And that is the basis of a strong movement, is understanding, right, how our, how our experiences are intertwined, but they don't actually have to be the same for them to be intertwined. Mm. Last mm. thing I'll say on this piece is that, you know, one of the things that also feels really important in building multiracial movements is to challenge each other around the ways that we have adopted stereotypes that keep us separate. And I say in the book that when we don't challenge each other around these things, what ends up happening is under pressure, right? The unity that we say we have built can easily, easily disintegrate. These are just a couple of lessons that I talk about in the book to help us orient around what is our purpose right now and how do we get there? And what are some of the stickiest places where we may want to make change, right? But we just haven't quite unlocked right? <laughs> what can help us get there. Oh, fantastic. Well, there's a lot there, I think, for people to take away and think about and the importance of those robust united fronts, as it were. I think is is vital to kind of think about and to kind of build again on what we were just talking about and the sort of the broad-based multiracial movements are slightly different from the sort of black liberation movements of the 60s and 70s and so on and you address this a little bit in the book and you talk about you actually challenge some of the perhaps the stories around them around their 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 politics perhaps and and also about how say when Malcolm X the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. and Huey Newton were killed their movements kind of died with them and then in the next generation in the 90s with you know Jesse Jackson and Al Sharpton and the sort of what is termed respectability politics and that sort of next wave um again these are, would you say that the movements now are building off the back of those in a specific way? What is, what is the kind of way that you engage with those previous movements? And, and why was it so important that those styles of leadership were sort of thrown off at the Ferguson Rebellion in particular? Mm. Well, let me say first that I think that all movements are shaped by their time, place and conditions. And the challenge is when we try to bring things forward um, from a different time, from a different place, and from different conditions, and we try to apply them in our today. And that has been some of the biggest challenge, right, around the politics that shape our movements. I will say that one thing I'm very proud of is that I think that this movement is intergenerational and there are still elders from the last period of civil rights and black power. There are elders from the movements of the 80s and 90s, which were also very much right about implementing some of the gains that had been won during that period and the, the activists and organizers of today. And I want that to expand and I want it to be bigger and I want it to be better. And I, I think there are some things that we 
can afford to abandon, given that we know that there are mistakes that we've made over and over again, and we're expecting different results, but they're not different unless we change our behavior. And then there are some things that I think we need to carry forward that are important for us to adapt for our particular time, place, and conditions. So let me give some specifics. You know, one of the things I talk about in the book is how for so many of us, <laughs> patriarchy is still a, a thing. <laughs> it is still very much a thing. And I, I just was talking to a mentor of mine um, just a couple of days ago. She came up, you know, during the, I mean, her sister was actually one of the founding members of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. And, you know, it's interesting to have conversations with people across generations and recognize we're still having the same problems, you know, the same problems around um, people shunning identity politics, the same problems around people feeling like to bring up the ways in which women are treated unequally is somehow mm -hmm. diverting the movement around black liberation. And, you know, it, it, it inspires this longing in me to say, God, can we get this right? Because we have a lot of stuff to do. And this should not be what we're working on. Like we, we have a lot of material. <laughs> there's, to some, use. there's some stuff to, yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> and then in terms of things that I think are important for us to bring forward, you know, I guess it just relates to what we were just talking about in terms of elections. I mean, mm. our elders really took elections and electoral politics seriously, and they knew also that they couldn't afford to leave anything on the table. You know, it's interesting. In 1965, it was the first time that black voters in this country actually switched parties. Usually black voters in, in the United States would vote for the Republican Party. And in 1965 was the first time that the majority of black voters began to vote for the Democratic Party. And it had everything to do with the fact that the Republican candidate at that time was essentially slandering Martin Luther King. And black folks were like, we're not, no, we're not no, going no. for that. right?" <laughs> and so um, black folks flexed our power mm. in service of advancing our goals. And our goals were to win dignity and respect for all of us. And I think that those are lessons that we can still carry forward to today that Frankly, there's enormous power in black votes. There is enormous power in black people being organized. And it's exactly the reason that there are so many efforts to disrail and dis discredit and delegitimize black organizing. It's because when black people get organized, right, we don't just organize for ourselves, but we organize for everybody who's been left out, everybody who's been left behind. And so I would say that that is something to continue to carry forward that we really have gotten from movements that have come before us. Last thing I'll offer here in terms of things to pay attention to, you know, I think a lot, I'm about to turn 40. I'm about to turn 40. <laughs> I'm feeling really good about it, actually. I'm like, I'm yeah, you're every fabulous. one of these 40 so, uh... years. <laughs> I wouldn't I've be worried. Thinking about it because I, you know, I, I get a lot from from the OGs. I get a lot of mm. like, "Oh, you millennials," and I'm like, "I'm not a millennial. I'm about to be 40 <laughs> years old," you know. But it makes me think a lot about 
what kind of elder do I want to be? I'm not close mm. to being an elder yet. I don't believe you can be an elder until you're over 55. Um, but I, I am in that middle position, right, where I am significantly older than lots of people who are coming into this movement now and young enough to still have relationships with elders. And so I see myself mm. in the middle often. And I think a lot about how to bring those camps together to continue to build on this tradition of learning from each other, not having to make the same mistakes over and over again, but also challenging this notion that like once you get above a certain age, it's not your fight anymore and you kind of have to leave it to the young people. It's like, no, we need all of it at mm. all times. And I haven't landed yet on what I think my role is, but essentially it's something that I see a lot in the practice of my elders, right? The mentors that I have who are the sharpest, the strongest, who have met the most in my life are the ones who listen deeply. They are the ones who say, oh God, girl, we, we, we've been dealing with this. They normalize it for you, right? So you don't feel like you're the only one, but they also themselves are bridge builders and they're mm. cheerleaders, but they are also fighting alongside of you. Um, so I, I'm, I've been thinking a lot about how I can help advance the same behavior. I am going to have to jump into these questions that are coming in because they are streaming in. And so, and there's so many fantastic ones. I will start with, you talk, and this is again, a question that I think is related to something in the book. Why could black capitalism never resolve the economic disparities suffered by black communities? Mm. Well, because our current economic system is based on profit that is a result of exploitation and oppression. And what I mean by that is, you know, essentially we have an economic system that sees people as disposable. And it doesn't matter if it's led by black people or white people or Asian people. Like It doesn't matter who it's led by because the actual form and the content of it, right, leads to the same results. And I know there's people out there that disagree and they feel like, you know, a black capitalism will be a kinder and a gentler capitalism. But you don't actually get capitalism without um, taking from some and giving to others. That is the actual, <laughs> that is the actual function of it. And so without also addressing racism and racialized capitalism, you will still get the same effects, but it'll just be mm. shifted onto different people. And mm. I think that we can't afford to keep shifting those impacts onto different people. It's what we do domestically, but it is also very much what we do globally. And we see the impacts mm. of that. And, um, you know, I just read an article yesterday about COVID refugees, right? Like people who are leaving their home countries to try to find relief in the middle of a global pandemic. And I read a story about a woman and her child who walked, I think it was something like 1500 miles from Colombia to from Colombia to Venezuela and then back mm. because they couldn't get the oh things that they needed there. And mm. that is what capitalism creates. And mm. it's a conversation that we have to have because, you know, for a lot of us, I think um, we think that making money is a good thing. 
and our world functions on money. Don't get me wrong. I don't get to be here on this computer with you, right? Um, I don't get to, you know, be wearing clothes if we're not exchanging money. This isn't a, a, a diatribe against money. It's a diatribe about how money gets generated and what the impacts are on people, communities, and the planet. And um, we have to have start having honest conversations about this because this mm-hmm. arrangement is not sustainable and it continues to cause so much of the misery that we're fighting against. And we cannot isolate, right, our economic arrangements from our social and our political ones. Mm. It's really interesting. And it's and it's also interesting to think about how the conversation that you're having about the movement domestically applies on a global scale. I'm going to jump back into the questions and we've got one from Penny. He says, Alicia, your energy and passion is inspiring. You're talking about how some things haven't changed in generations. How do you stay so positive in the face of it? Thank you, Penny. I don't always stay positive in the face of that. I will tell you, I have many, many days of ranting. But look, we have a lot of work to do. And I I think I'm driven by the idea that and the possibility that this is not something that I will pass on to my children. And so in that way, it's not enough for me to just rant. I have to throw myself into it because I personally don't want to live in a world where this continues. And I certainly don't want my children or the people who I love who are coming up after me um, to shoulder the same burdens. Mm. The um, the idea of stewardship, kind of passing on something hopefully better. We have one from an anonymous person who says, if as a white person I self-educate and work hard on my thinking, speech and behaviour, can I be a welcome ally or is it better for me to stand back and applaud from the side and simply get out of your way? Oh, I'm so glad you asked this. <laughs> I, I feel a lot of ways on this. I'll start by saying that I don't believe that white people should just get out of the way and be quiet. I don't see how that changes the world that we live in. And frankly, a world that was built for white people. The worst thing that you could do is stand back and get out of the way and be quiet. Um, With that being said, though, um, there are some core tasks that I think white folks who want to be allies to this movement Um, must take in order to do so in a genuine and authentic way. Um, You certainly mentioned, you know, changing the way you think, changing the way you speak, changing the way you show up, and that's important. Our individual actions and behaviors do matter, but what matters more, right, is rules and changing the rules. And those are the written rules and they're the unwritten rules. The work that you just named is the unwritten rules of power, right? Changing the way that our culture functions to privilege white voices, white needs, white desires, white experiences over everything else. And culture and culture change is not enough to make the change that we need in this country. And so it does have a lot to do with joining the fight to change the written rules of how resources are distributed, of how decisions are made and who gets to make them, of how consequences are levied, right, when our agendas are not advanced in the way that we want them to. And this is a critical piece of white allyship that I think people often overlook. And I think it's to our detriment, quite frankly, you know, I, I I see 
this movement as having so many roles. And one of the roles that I think very few people take on well is organizing white communities to resist white supremacy. And that is a place where I feel like everybody cannot do everything, right? And I would love to see more white folks not see this movement as like just a movement for black people, but actually see it as a movement for white people too. A movement for white people to divest, right, from white supremacy and to invest, right, in a multiracial democracy. And that is a unique and specific role that only some can play. And I, I really do wish that more people would do it. So in that way, um, I don't believe in getting out of the way, but I do think that it is important to not just focus on what black people are doing, <laughs> right? We got our own stuff we got to work out. And I'm <laughs> trying to do it every day. We got to be superheroes. And we also have to check all of our weird stuff that we've, you know, adopted and been indoctrinated into as well. And we can't do that and do it for everybody else too, <laughs> right? So our contribution to building a multiracial democracy is really about getting black folks together, right? And getting us organized. And we need white allies to get white folks together and get white folks organized. And then we can join in a movement that is all trying to do the same thing. But if one piece is underdeveloped and another piece is kind of moving along, right? Then it slows our progress. Hmm. That's a great call to action. And there's a there's a James Baldwin quote that sort of references how, you know, racism was a white person's problem, but I'm not going to try to say it because I'll butcher it. Um, we'll take... <laughs> That's how James Baldwin is, Sha. That's yeah. how it is. I mean, we'll just, we'll just give, we'll give just, honor to I'll the be like, Yeah, there's a quote. There's yeah, a quote. exactly. Um, <laughs> then we have a question from Claudia Crawley who says, how have you responded to the demonization and criminalization of the Black Lives Matter movement by right-wing folk? And what does this mean for movement building? So glad you asked this, Claudia. You know, I want to say that we have shifted our orientation. You know, at first when this was happening, we were like, oh, haters going to hate, right? <laughs> haters going to hate and we're just going to keep doing what we're doing and they're going to tell mm -hmm. lies about us and we're just going to ignore it and keep doing what we do. But I think what I've realized, and I know this is true for me too in talking with Patrice and others, is that Ignoring it doesn't make it go away and ignoring it doesn't contend for who gets to tell the story. And for us, I think one mistake that we've made is um, leaving too much space for nonsense to proliferate unchallenged. Mm. So this time around, I think we have been more deliberate about fighting back and standing up and saying, no, that's not true. And actually, you need to provide receipts because you are making a lot of claims right now. We have receipts. You don't. <laughs> right? So that has been really important. But I also want to say that it is it's exhausting. It is exhausting to have to do this. And in particular, it's exhausting to feel like we are the ones to do it. So I know a lot of people who will say, oh my gosh, I hear so much terrible stuff about you guys all the time. And I'm like, cool, what are you doing about it? It can't just be us who are challenging and saying, no, this is actually wrong. And here's what's wrong with what you're saying. And here's the impacts. It has to be much more of a global fight. And 
this is why we place so much emphasis, right, on decentralization and on this not being a movement of one person or three people, right, or even 10 people, that actually this movement has to belong to all of us. And I had a friend who said something to me once that I've taken with me a lot. And they said, and the context for this comment was, you know, we were talking about whether or not to disband something that we had built. And we were nervous about what it would look like. Did it need to be disbanded? How, how would we deal with it? And they said, well, anything that is worth fighting for, people will not let die. And you have to be able to step back and see how the, how the leaves fall, right? And if it's meant to still be functional, people will step in when you step out. If it is not, right, then they will leave it to wither away. And I've carried those words with me because they have been true every single time without fail. And I I use those words to encourage us to remember, right, that we too have to decide if we believe that Black Lives Matter is worth fighting for. And if we believe that it is worth fighting for, now's the time. Um, because there are so many forces that are trying to discredit, delegitimize, um, to cause chaos. And being quiet or silent in the face of that does not help to lift it. And it also does not help to demonstrate that this is something that we will all fight for. Um, so that would be my my plea. And also, I'll just say, lastly, that I love to give a good read. So... <laughs> You should know that on my best days, I'm gracious about it. But on my worst days, I just let people have it because that's sometimes what's needed to just <laughs> shut it all the way down. Yeah, I mean, we're human, right? And it, some, yeah. it depends on what day you catch a person sometimes. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. My mom used to say, you teach people how to treat you. <laughs> right? <laughs> so sometimes people need to be taught. Oh, that's just all there is to it. <laughs> Okay, we have only a few minutes left and so many questions to get through. So I'm going to try to do my best, but thank you so much for your wonderful answers. We have another one, which I think is really interesting, who says, I'm struck by your references to learning, adapting, learning, adapting how we organize. How can we step back and take a view on what works and what doesn't when we're so close to the coalface? This is a good question. You know, we don't have any other choice. We don't have any other choice because what we know is that we're in this for a while. And so being close to the fire is not an excuse for not evaluating, reflecting, refining, and coming back bigger, badder, and sharper. And I can guarantee you, stepping back to reflect and to refine, this movement isn't going anywhere. These challenges that we're facing, they're not gonna get worse or disappear because you have taken a step back to reflect. And in fact, you might find that doing so actually helps you be in this work for the long haul. It's when we don't give ourselves permission to do that, that we burn out and that we become actually quite useless to a movement that needs us to be in it for the long haul. Mm. I'm gonna add on to that personally. I think I was involved in community work for a long time like from when I was a teenager and then sort of reached a point where 
I think that moment of realization became very impossible to ignore that I that stepping back was also how I became more effective and but anyway let's I'm going to jump back into these questions this one's I think interesting you talk about change and and that might mean revolution to people but revolution can often be bloody does that mean we prepare for that Hmm. well I think there are lots of definitions of revolution. And so I don't want us to boil revolution down to bloody or violent, right? Um, That is often the impact, right, of conditions that remain unchanged for a long time. And so I might give that a different name, but revolutions happen over time and they are ongoing, right? And I would say that we are in the middle of at least a 10-year revolution, Mm. literally, in the middle of it. And frankly, we have a long way to go. And Mm. when we look at how change has happened in so many places around the world, it has not been one incident. Uh, Those incidents may have been for the purpose of establishing power or rule, right? But the process of implementing change, which is how I understand revolution, is um, much longer than that. And it's much more multifaceted than that. So with that being said, I will say, um, I believe that I believe that we need to ensure the safety and the wholeness and the dignity of all of our communities. And I can tell you just from personal experience that the things that drive people to take action, right, are not the things that are violent or confrontational in those ways. It is the things that the things that move people are their hope. It is their ability to see, right, and to touch and to taste what change actually feels like. And people will decide the best methods for getting there. But ultimately, I think it's more of a question of how do we keep building this movement for a longer period of change to be able to be possible? So I I think I'll leave that there. Hmm. Thank you. We have, I think I'm going to finish on a note of perhaps a call to action or asking you as somebody within, you know, in the middle of the elders and the young people, what is your advice to to people who want to be involved in real change or organizing but are uncertain about where to start? And I'm sure you get this question a lot, mm-hmm. but um, yeah, where where do you advise people to begin? Well, my first piece of advice is to figure out what you care about, find other people who care about the same things that you do, and join them. And once you have then your role is to figure out how to expand the number of people who care about the things that you do and how to compel them to join you. That is the process of building movements. I will also say that um, for so many of us, we discount the things that we are really good at because we think we have to be good at things we don't know how to do. And I don't want you to do that. I mean, honestly, if you're a writer, write for the movement. If you are a painter, paint for the movement. If you're a mechanic, be a mechanic for the movement. I mean, come in where you are strong and lend your strengths 
to this movement. There is not a mandate for you, right, to come in as something that you don't do. I'm not going to come in as a mechanic. I don't know anything about fixing cars. All I know how to do is put gas in the thing. I know how to check the oil and I know how to change a tire. That's it, child. I don't know how to do anything else with the relationship to a car. But you know what I do know how to do? I know how to write. I know how to organize. I know how to get people to use their platforms for politics. There's a lot that I can offer. And so I want to leave the mechanic work to the mechanics. And I'm going to do what I know how to do. And together, right, we are going to create a cornucopia. (laughs) You like Mm, that? What a great word. Yes. You can write, sis. (laughs) You know, of skills and talents that will help move this movement forward. Oh, Elisa Garza, thank you so much for being so generous with your time and your insight and your wealth of experience. The Purpose of Power is available to be purchased through the chat. And also, you know, please share share the podcast link, share your thoughts on Twitter using hashtag IQ2. But genuinely, thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure. This has been the Intelligence Squared And remember, you can get a copy again of the book in the chat box. Thank you so much, Alexia. Thank you. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organization, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships.